Hello and welcome to Witch Car Weekly. You don't need an introduction. Well, hopefully you don't because you know what we're all about. It's all of the, we are the best, the best motoring podcast in this part of Australia at this time of day with this particular collection of people. So by some standard, the very best motoring podcast you'll find anywhere on this vast internet. My name is Daniel Gardner. This is Witch Car Weekly, and I'm joined, as is customary, because you don't want to be punished by my voice for approximately 30 minutes. Uh, I would like to introduce some dear friends and colleagues of mine, Andy Enright, uh, Deputy Editor of Wheels Magazine. Hello there. How are you? Uh, good, actually. All the better for seeing your fine face. And speaking of uh, esteemed Wheels Magazine members, we are also joined, returning again, Cameron Kirby, online uh, digital editor. How does that work exactly? You're the online editor for a magazine. Seems to be like a yes. in term. Yeah, so everything that goes online, this guy's responsibility. And you do a sterling job too, Cam. Thank you both for joining me, gentlemen. Um, the talk topic for today, let's start with something a bit newsy and something that got under my skin a little bit. We, electric vehicles is something we talk about frequently on Witch Car Weekly because, frankly, I think we're all agreed they are an inevitability. It's not a matter of if, it's now when. So when you see any sort of news or, or commentary um, from particularly the governments in Australia, then it really pricks our ears, doesn't it? Because that means that there's potentially some progress that we may one day as a nation join the rest of the civilised world and actually make electric vehicles good and easy to own. So imagine my delight when I saw that New South, New South Wales government had announced um, significant amount of funding to uh, build infrastructure, so public charging stations, um, fast chargers, things that make EVs really easy to live with. Um, good news, you would think. And in isolation, it actually was. So the, so the deal is, yeah, New South Wales will be getting a lot more public charging stations, which you can't deny is a good thing. However, the thing that really bugged me is going on in the background there was a financial review and report happening also by the New South Wales government. And in that protracted document, there was a, a point, which if you read very closely, or you just did the lazy thing, which I did, and that is run a find of for the words electric vehicle, there was a, a, a notion in there, they're considering what they're calling a distance charge for electric vehicles. Now, is it just me that thinks that sounds a little bit underhanded and frankly worrying it's so not into it it's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> okay so let me explain what they're thinking of doing is charging people because of course electric vehicles don't use any fossil fuels and we know fossil fuels um rake in about 40 percent um of the actual cost per per liter is tax um so that's a significant amount of money for the various governments um, around Australia. Now, of course, you drive an electric vehicle, you're not paying that 40% in every litre, and that means there's a massive deficit in tax for the government. So they're looking at finding ways and making money out of electric vehicle owners and drivers with this thing called a distance charge, which is, to me, just seems like exactly the opposite of what the rest of the modern and forward-thinking world is doing, while the rest of these nations are embracing electric vehicles, giving people good reasons to use them, because we all know they're not only good for the environment of the planet, they're, as I said before, inevitable. So the New South Wales government is, on the one hand, being very public and high-profile about, here's some electric vehicle charges for you. By the way, <laughs> not only are you going to have to pay for those, you're then also going to have to pay to use the car whenever you get to any sort of significant distance. Am I just being a ranty old pom, or 
have, have I got a point here? Is this just a little bit underhanded, particularly how they snuck that little uh, distance charge away in a document that hasn't really been widely publicised? It, it is very sneaky. Um, like if you look at uh, some of the more progressive um, countries around the world, um, people hold up Norway as an example for this. Uh, yeah. But they gave a whole load of... Um, incentives for people to migrate to electric cars they could park in city centers for free they could get on ferries for free there were there were um, subsidies on purchase and all that sort of stuff and it was enormously beneficial in getting people into electric cars which we're not very good at in this country but um the upshot of it was that the price that they paid was massive in terms of reducing co2 it would have been far better for them to just you know purchase carbon credits from the eu and the whole country would have effectively been carbon neutral for the cost that they paid for what is a relatively small um greenhouse gas emission reduction so it's it's a it's a kind of tortured subject um the federal revenue from road transport expenditure is added to the general revenue pool and it's not earmarked for road infrastructure. So the the tax take that they get, we don't always get back in terms of roads. You know, the federal government can provide assistance to state governments, um, state and local governments for road construction and maintenance. And the federal government, um, it collects fuel excise tax, GST on fuel, GST on vehicle sales, LCT, heavy vehicle road charge. That all goes into the federal pot. Right. Um, and that's what that's what they're losing with reduced fuel excise charges. So that's interesting to, to, to note that. Then, So the money, that they, and it actually made a point in this review, if you go and find it somewhere, it is available. Um, they actually say, you know, we're going to, to introduce this distance charge because it will then replace the, the tax that we're getting to put into road infrastructure and repairs and maintenance and construction. So they actually made a point of saying this is what this goes to, but actually what you're saying, that's not necessarily true. It goes wherever the hell they like it. Pretty much, yeah. The only thing that the state collects uh, is vehicle rego and vehicle stamp duties. So, yeah, that goes... the the fuel excise tax goes into some amorphous pot to be spent on whatever right well that makes makes me even more yes exactly submarines (laughs) which of course we don't spend enough money on in this country at all um yeah the reason that irks me even more then is because what there was no mention of in this is the fact that people are already paying a tax on the power to charge their electric vehicles it's not like they're driving these things they actually use an expression Mm. which really annoyed me they said the free ride is what they described electric vehicles as it's not a bloody free ride they're paying rego they're paying tax and insurance on the vehicles they're paying gst and then they're paying tax on the power to charge stamp duty all the things there's basically what we're saying is there's literally no incentive at all apart from a small discount on your registration of about $100 in some states to make the cost of EV any lower and to make them any more enticing. So I know that there, there was a particularly laughable part in there that said, um, you know, that they were going to charge a sort of nominal fee per kilometre, whether it's four cents, similar fee to fuel excise. And, um, but they said that motorists would welcome this. Um, EV drivers would welcome this because it would give them security about future EV running costs. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was quite crazy, yeah. and and it just said funds should be reinvested in new transport capacity. Yes, they should be, but they haven't been, and they won't be. Um, uh, we know this. 
How fantastically laughable is that? Yes, it's like it goes along the lines that the EV owners should should feel satisfied that they're enabling Australia to become a more environmentally focused country out of the goodness of their hearts and their own pockets. You know, you should feel happy. You should feel happy and and proud to be supporting (laughs) this entire venture just by yourself. And the way the way that this whole thing is policed is that motorists would submit photos of their Odo every six or 12 yeah, months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't see any scope that that would be abused at all. You? No. It, would be, it would be abused in exactly the same way that, okay, here we go. Side anecdote. Um, uh, my first car was, a, was a, deemed a classic vehicle. You'd be, you be the judge. Um, 1976 Triumph Spitfire. And um, I had classic car insurance, which did, in the same way, uh, it limited your kilometres just like um, club plates do a club permit doesn't in this country uh, as long as you could declare how many kilometers you're doing a year um and to do that you had to submit them and if you ever got um, inspected then they just read your odo and so i had two speedometers <laughs> i didn't clock my car because that would be highly illegal i just swapped the speedos over when it, i ran up enough k's and just <laughs> so you're absolutely right photoshop is a wonderful thing you can't hack a tesla and say you've done fewer kilometers but you can just submit a heavily doctored picture obviously that's yeah, the thing. That, Anyone I, that is trying to like police things through submitted photographs has never heard the words photo and shop. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah so no, going no, back to the to rethink. So, so this distance charge, I don't think it's necessarily a completely bad idea. I just don't. I don't want to sound like this guy standing up on a tea chest and ranting without any kind of solution. Because in other nations, uh, California, for example, is one of the states in America that has imposed a, a similar thing. In fact, it's almost identical. They have a distance charge there for EV owners. The difference being they give you other good reasons to own an EV. If you use their um, green car subsidy, you can, I think, depending on, it's all sort of means tested or whatever, but but the very best end of the spectrum and the scale, you can get about 15 grand off the cost of a new car, which is significant, you know, absolutely, considering the cost of um, cars in the US, particularly Teslas, that kind of thing, are not as high as ours anyway. So, I think it works in a country where you're not you're not just taking and taking and taking. If you give a little there and say, okay, this is how we get you into an EV, but but obviously we need something back from you. The quid pro quo approach works beautifully. But what we're getting in Australia is it just seems zero reasons to convince people to, to drive electric vehicles. I also yeah, think it's about timing. Right. Like, why why are we doing this now when we're trying to incentivize people to get into them? Like, do it four years, five years down the track. Sure, it, it might be justifiable when we've actually got a decent EV fleet in the country. But you're better off taxing Toyota drivers than... EV drivers <laughs> like the fleet of EVs in the state must be minuscule well there's a good that's a, I, I love your um your thinking there Cam like so I wonder let's reverse the question if you said there was going to be a tax on Toyotas would it stop people driving them I wonder in the same way that hmm. if you said you know how, I don't know how much of a, a pack of cigarettes is now I think, I think it's a lot it's like 20 bucks or something or maybe even more um if we've been taxing tobacco to stop people smoking for years and years, but it doesn't seem to, to do that. Perhaps, I've got completely the wrong end of the stick, perhaps taxing people to drive EVs won't stop them because they're already headstrong enough to actually go through the whole process of weighing up whether one is right for them. I was out on a, on a drive um, in Mini's first uh, EV, actually, the Cooper SE, which I can't talk about at this particular moment, but while I was out and about, by chance and coincidence, and given the number of vehicle, electric vehicles that are sold in Australia, you'd know what a coincidence is, I bumped into a Nissan Leaf driver. 
And it was really interesting to talk to someone who needs no convincing. All the time, you know, what it's like, guys, we talk to people who are going, should I drive an electric vehicle? And we have to give them the whole spiel. Whereas it was really refreshing talking to someone who already knows why you should, how easy it is. And they gave me the whole thing of, look, yeah, it works for us. You plug it in at night, it's ready in the morning. It's like a mobile phone. And it was just refreshing to, so perhaps, perhaps, these people are so headstrong, they will pioneer the way for other EV drivers. And, and it's just, uh, we're waiting on a tipping point. Yeah, I think, I think there will come a point where we need a radical reappraisal of, of how we use our roads and how we build for those. Now is not that time, um, as Cameron has rightly pointed out, that our EV take-up is, is so minuscule at the moment that we need to be incentivising people into these cars. You know, Norway had the right idea with that, the polluter pays principle. Mm. You know, um, if, if you're in a, in a big, heavy vehicle, they, they were charging by weight um, and CO2, that, that you pay more. That, that makes sense. Um, here, that's not the case. Um, what they found in, in Norway, uh, as an aside, was that as these private networks of chargers took off, the private market was then charging basically whatever they could get away with for electricity. Oh, right. So the Ionity chargers, the fast chargers that went out across Norway, are so expensive that um, people are now realising that it's cheaper to run an internal combustion vehicle oh. than an EV. So oh, no. The, so, the, yeah, that aspect of, of fueling the vehicle has kind of, they've lost control of that pretty much in Norway. So there are all sorts of weird unintended consequences of, of driving course. people into EVs. And then, of course, if you, if you take that approach, then, of course, people with relatively uh, lower income will say, well, you're taxing the people who can least afford to get into an EV. So, you know, exactly. at the moment, exactly. electric vehicles are relatively expensive. I think the cheapest one is around about 45 grand, the Hyundai Ioniq. Um, that's still an expensive car. If you're trying to get into a very, very cheap car, um, try finding an even cheaper used EV as well. Um, so, yeah, of course, you're faced with the problems. Like all politics, you're never going to please everyone all the time. But I think what we can agree on is that Australia can definitely do a lot more and very few people would really oppose that. Agreed. But um, to take <laughs> to take the subject from uh, ways of using less fuel uh, to the idea of using just about more fuel than you could ever possibly do. Um, Cam, you've been getting some really interesting and extensive traffic and coverage writing about um, a very special, would we call it an event? It's not even really an event. It's a, it's, I'm going to say the legend, the legend of Cannonball. Tell us all about this um, and exactly what's been going on just lately. Yeah, so the Cannonball record has kind of entered a new golden era. Uh, and for the uninitiated, Cannonball run... Uh, we started back in the, the, the late 70s, early 80s, um, and he's essentially driving from New York in America's East Coast to Los Angeles in the West Coast as fast as humanly possible. So it is highly illegal, the <laughs> speeds that they're doing. Like, I just, I just cannot stress how illegal this is <laughs> before we get any further. Uh, and they're doing some truly ridiculous things. And, and, and a new era has kind of come about because of, funnily enough, a global pandemic has resulted in a lot less traffic on the road. And so there's a lot of opportunists that have seen this and gone, now's the time to do it. Now's the time to go absolutely ballistic and do it. So I said there would uh, be a yeah. silver lining to the COVID-19 <laughs> outbreak and this is it. <laughs> this is it. 
So, uh, yeah, currently the record stands at under 26 hours. So it's, uh, it's 25 hours, 55 minutes is the only official time we've got. Someone has gone faster than that. We don't know exactly how much faster. So it's a, roughly a 4,500-kilometre journey if you do it the most direct route. Wow. Um, yeah, so that's an Give average us, speed. Yes, the maths. Average. I'm sure you've already done them. <laughs> Average of 174 kilometers an hour for 26 hours straight. Oh That's God. not taking into account the times that you're stopped. So, for example, if you need to average 90 miles per hour and you stop for a minute, you need to spend two minutes at 180 miles per hour to continue oh, that average. Wow. When you put it like that, that puts into perspective just how fast and how the losses of stopping. So, so presumably then people try to stop as little as possible. Yes, exactly. So the, the 25 hour, 55 minutes, that time is, that, is the first run that we kind of know of with a single stop. Traditionally, people do a three-stop or a two-top stop strategy, much like an F1 race. (laughs) A a single-stop strategy. It it gets even more ridiculous. So the guy that did that is Fred Ashmore. That name will mean nothing to anyone that isn't involved in these circles. But Fred is a bit of a lunatic in the best way possible. So traditionally, people do these runs with two drivers and a spotter. So you, you swap drivers at the stop and you've got a permanent spotter in the back seat that has gyro-stabilised binoculars to spot cops and all kinds. Like, they're on the <laughs> CB radios. It's nuts. Fred's crazy because he did his solo. Come on. He didn't, ha- he didn't have a co-driver. He didn't have anyone sitting in the passenger seat spotting. It was him in a rented Ford <laughs> Mustang V8 <laughs> that he had stripped all of the seats out all the interior trimmings out of this rented car and strapped in, like Oki strapped in 500 litres worth of fuel tanks. Sure. It was basically a, a, a speeding incendiary device. Then. Yes. 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 He, so he, he could dr- be the, the modern highway Hindenburg. He was nearing a, 200 k's an hour with 500 litres of flammable liquid inside the cabin. Oh, the humanity. <laughs> uh, and so he he stopped once he made one stop that was such a like no one else i can from what i can find out has had that much fuel in their car and so he stopped once he had it and instead of going to a fuel station because you then you then stuck with a single pump or maybe they'll put two pumps into the tanks yeah. and try and fill them to minimize time he had guys ahead of him in like a like a big american pickup like a 2500 julie that had a 500 litre fuel tank in the back of that thing that was gravity fed, like a NASCAR style oh, wow. fuel feeding mechanism. So they filled 500 litres in eight minutes. That is spectacularly okay. wonderful. Like, I don't know whether I should. Uh, is this so massively like, antisocial and terrible? But I can't help but also equally love him and also despise him in equal measures. Like, I mean, this is I know, just... it's quite conflicting, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's such an audacious act and so, but... so potentially dangerous. You imagine if he yeah, killed anyone, totally... obviously it'd be terrible. But the fact that he pulled it off and all was fine, presumably didn't get stopped or any attention at all from the police. Uh, he had one close call with cops, but was obviously <laughs> wasn't stopped or caught or anything like that. And that, that's the other thing is dodging cops is half the game for these people. Yeah. Thankfully, fingers crossed, touch wood, no one has died during the cannonball run, which is an, a crazy safety record. But also a matter of time, I would say. <laughs> it, yes. <laughs> it certainly feels like that. But, like, so he had a radar scanner and a radar jammer 
And that was it in terms of anti-cop measures along with Waze, the, the, the app. So he had a detector so he would know when he was being pinged by a radar and a jammer to scramble it for a temporary amount of time so he could try and slow this thing down while he was being measured. But, like, the, the measures they go to, so Alex Roy in 2006 had a plane, a support <laughs> plane. That's that cheating. Flew. I could fly across America really quickly as well. There are no rules when it comes to cannonball, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. He wasn't um, in the plane. He was using it as a, as a support plane. Yeah, so it flew above him and and ahead of him and told him where the traffic was, oh, where the wow. cop traps were, where the roadworks were, all that kind of stuff. Um, spotters are a very frequent thing. So there was a run, what we what we think is the fastest run, which was faster than Ashmore, had 30 spotters across the way. And so what these people would do, they'd come onto the highway probably about 100 k's ahead of the car that's doing the run and just travel at the speed limit. and radio back and message back where the police were right. so that, Simple the, as that the people in the car when they hit that gps spot that they've been marked by their team they can slow down and and get back to the a legal limit and so there was 30 of these people across the country that were just telling them where the cops were the whole time the the organization is just wonderful but and clearly people are going to great lengths to do this but what i find so interesting about this this latest guy and his rented mustang is that Previously, we've seen guys in very, very fast cars. I think there was an E63 or a C63 that was loaded up with, I mean, when you published the story last time, Cam, the, the pictures of the gear inside the car was unbelievable. It looked like a military vehicle. They might have equipment that was in there. Um, so fast car, three people, all the equipment. Now this guy's done it in a rented, not particularly fast car by any measure. He, he did it with t- basically two pieces of specialized equipment and, and by himself and a big tank in the boot, which says to me, that if with that very unsophisticated approach, there's still so much room for improvement. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to, so directly after that uh, Ashmore's record came in, I was talking to Dave Mayer, who is the co-driver for the 2006 record. I was, I, was, I was on a WhatsApp call with him and he said, there's two schools of thought when it comes to a cannonball. You're either meticulous, like Alex Roy and like Arnie yeah. and Doug, and, and, that, and that kind of like, we will have weather maps and contingency plans and planes and that kind of stuff. Or you're a Fred Ashmore and you say, screw it. I'm just going to keep my right foot into it until I get to the other side of the country. And the most recent spat of records before Ashmore were very much that meticulous, thought out, planned run. And Mayo was saying that Ashmore's kind of shown that there's credence to the other one as well. If you are just crazy yeah. enough, you can do anything. And bear the consequences. And that brings me on to my next question is that, why is he now not in jail? Like, I mean, if you if you put a video of that on on the internet, obviously there's evidence. So, isn't just talking about it? Isn't his name being out there and associated with doing this remarkable automotive feat enough to get him a massive fine or even worse? I think it speaks to his recklessness that he was willing to admit <laughs> to it so early. So, traditionally in America, record holders will wait a year because that is the statute of limitations on traffic offences. Oh, right. So in 2006, when Alex Roy did his, he waited until 2007 to actually announce it. And then it's um, too late for them to, to sting him for it. Yeah, and, and the other one is with Ashmore is there's no footage or photos of him actually doing it. There are screenshots of mm. a GPS app of him across the country. There are shots of the car and there are shots of the refueling. But there's no evidence that he was actually in the car doing it. Right. So unless you catch unless you catch him in the act, 
he's not dumb enough to actually film himself doing it, <laughs> which, of which course. I think is the big difference. Well, I would say that all it's going to take is one blown tyre with 500 litres of fuel uh, behind them and a v- massive nuclear-esque fireball, and I would say someone's going to be changing laws very, very quickly. Um, one of the quotes that I liked so much from one of the interviews this guy gave immediately afterwards was, he said, um, interesting and useful bit of consumer advice. He said, I don't care what anyone says, the Ford Mustang GT will not go any faster than 159 miles an hour. It's about 255 kilometers. Personally, I wouldn't be taking consumer advice for someone who's carrying a half ton of fuel in a two-door <laughs> two sports car. Because I'm going to say that's going to have a direct impact on its performance, unless he was running the tank dry at that point. And, and we've all driven Mustangs. High speed driving in a Mustang, like, that's an experience it's, without it's 500... Without 500 litres of fuel in the car. <laughs> and, and, and again, great consumer advice, fuel economy, 19.6 litres per 100 Ks, just in case you were wondering. I was actually. That's actually nowhere near as bad as I was expecting. Like, that's, I was expecting it to be worse. That is incredible. No, it's, it's considerably better than Nathan Ponchard achieved in his long-term Mustang for us, which was pegged at the maximum 25 litres throughout his <laughs> with the vehicle. Good on you, Ponch. Who knows what he was up to in that car. So begs the question then, if, if you can smash this record by a significant amount um, in a rented Mustang, surely there there is uh, the opportunity to improve with just using the car. So, gentlemen, question to you. What do you think, given the choice of any vehicle, money, no object, would be the ultimate to try and have uh, an attempt on this record? I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards something like uh, a Koenigsegg Gamera, something like that, <laughs> something that you can get people in the back that is ridiculously fast, but nevertheless still has an internal combustion engine. Okay. Um, that would be good. But uh, my, my personal opinion is that it, it should, uh, they should revisit the rules of this thing and make everyone do it in Renault Zoe's. <laughs> I think the time will become much slower very quickly. <laughs> maybe this is, maybe this is the, uh, the heyday for the cannonball run. Um, and yeah, after this, all, all the regulations and emissions rules will start um, bringing the times back down again. But Cam, if you were to, uh, to make your mark on the cannonball run, what would it be? If I was being pragmatic, it'd be something like a Audi S8 or a S63, something that is built from the factory to go long distances at sustained high speed. That, and, and importantly, has the suspension to deal with it. That's something that Alex Roy talks about quite a lot, is that, uh, you know, being fast and quick accelerating is one thing, but it's being stable at that speed that you want. Um, but the patriotic bit of me says I would want to do it in like a VF red line. Just like, <laughs> <laughs> something Australian. Something just like, yeah, get out there and have a four-door V8 sedan. Well, I, okay, we, we clearly approached this from the same sort of thinking and same logic because I thought exactly the same as you did. What you want is something that is capable of enormous speed but also has plenty of room for extra fuel tanks, which, as we've known from the latest attempts, that's, that is critical. You stop less. So I thought Rolls-Royce Phantom. 
Or, of course, the <laughs> equivalent Bentley Mulsanne. Can you imagine? Perfect. You've got about six and a half litres of V12 with turbos, plenty of power for the sustained cruising. But also, wouldn't it be hilarious to look in that lovely plush leather upholstered rear seat and just see a 600 litre fuel tank instead? Soaked in fuel, I'm sure, the <laughs> Renault. <laughs> I'd like to see your Rolls Royce Phantom um, stick it up as a, a highway patrol car as well. <laughs> if you're going to be illegal, just very illegal exactly right yes okay um final question on this subject then this is no new thing trying to make point-to-point uh dashes and set new records is has really been around since the the birth of of cars really and i wondered if you guys had any kind of any other sort of notable uh, point-to-point races or records that maybe were just sort of gentlemanly uh bets or um in the same vein or perhaps if there are any other uh, events that sort of celebrate the same thing as the Cannonball Run. It's not an official thing. I mean, obviously, I was thinking about this and I thought, is the Gumball 3000 in the same sort of vein? And it's not really, because that's sort of a bit pretentious for very sort of wealthy people who just want to be sort of seen in their ridiculous cars and actually not um, blatantly flat and break the law in the same way that the uh, the Cannonball guys do. So is there anything else in your minds that sort of fits the same bill that we should be mentioning in the same breath? There's been a couple in Australia, funnily enough. <laughs> that, that doesn't have the same history, but like there has certainly been a couple in Australia in the, uh, in the late 80s. So Surfer's Paradise to Perth, that was done in sort of 31 hours, 45 minutes. Then that another group quite went, good. Yeah, it's about 140 k's an hour is the average speed. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That's a phenomenal um, clip. Yeah, and a similar average speed from Melbourne to Fremantle. That was 32 hours, 22 minutes. Ooh, that sounds uh, very that, impressive. That, funnily enough, was one in a six-wheeled, one-ton ute. And if you thought <laughs> 500 litres of fuel was a lot, these guys had a 1,000 litres. Oh, wow. See, that's the fascinating thing about this whole, this whole conundrum is that it becomes a, um, a game of diminishing returns because, of course, the more fuel you carry, the more power you need to drag it. So there's actually an optimum point. So we... It'll be someone will be able to run the formula or the spreadsheet on that. Yeah, my um, first journalistic job was that race from uh, the furthest east point of um, England in Lowestoft to Aberystwyth in Wales. That was a that was a race, and uh, in a Nissan I nearly won as well. Yeah, ETR, wasn't won. it? <laughs> I got to within about five kilometres of winning that. Um, second place was a Dodge Viper. Third place was an Audi A8. Um, but the, yeah, the Nissan GTR was the car to have. I can I can say that right up until it drove to an Armco barrier. Yes, I was going to yeah. say. Provided, <laughs> the stipulation is provided you can keep it actually on the road. Where I think that's yes. one of the uh, yeah. yes requirements of of winning that one. Well, for me, the the spiritual sort of uh, uh, origin of this is of course um, Bertha Benz. Uh, this is that's, I think where all of these things come from. Of course, um, Carl Benz, the the founder of what one part of Mercedes-Benz, his, his wife was, was the first person to really ever do any, I suppose, proper documented long haul driving feat when she drove a very, very a dizzying 105 kilometers in, in Benz's first car as some kind of proof of, of concept and quality control. Did you have a spotter plane? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they had any planes at all, then, did they? <laughs> It is interesting because the, the history of the Cannonball goes back that far. Like the name Cannonball actually comes from a bloke named Erwin G. Cannonball Baker. <gasps> Dan immediately goes to Depol and changes his name to Cannonball. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, and he was paid by car companies back in the day in America 
to just crisscross the country as quick as possible to prove that internal combustion engines were more efficient than trains and were safer and quicker and the road (laughs) network could do it. That's how the cannonball came across, was like, we got to beat trains. Cam, that is fascinating. That is absolutely wonderful. Well, maybe that's how, maybe this is how we win over the government with electric vehicles as we started in this, this conversation. Perhaps we need to come up with some kind of um, amazing automotive athletic feat, which a combustion-powered car could never do, um, and thereby win over the hearts of the public and the government in all one, in all one stride. Uh, but of course, there is no thing. Is there? <laughs> There's no one thing that EVs at the moment can do any better than combustion power. So uh, that's the that is the message and the takeaway of this one. They can play farting sounds through their infotainment systems. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, guys. Once again, we have uh, we've settled the world's automotive problems uh, and come up with zero good theories. Thank you so much. Cameron Kirby uh, of Wheels Magazine and your colleague, Which Car Weekly regular Andy Enright. Until next Always time, drive safely. But um, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, whichcar.com.au is the website and you can find all of our social medias there. If you've listened this far, I recommend you stay on a little bit longer because there's probably going to be an outtake. Cheerio. Talking about gunts and grundles or something like that. There you go. You've just heard the outtake that will go at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs>